This is Operation Red Pill. The only podcast hosted by Truthfully Armed, where we take you beyond conspiracy theories to the heart of the conspiracy itself. I'm Jason Spears with my co-host Christopher Dean. Oh yeah. Join us as we go behind enemy lines to reveal the truth about another aspect of this occult matrix as we discuss in this week's Intel Briefing. Why we believe the Bible, the Vody Bakum bit. The Library of Congress is the largest library in the world and the Bible is the widest circulating book in its collection. But is it wise to put our faith in a book written even before our nation's founding? Can we trust it to be relevant and how does it stack up against other ancient documents? We're going to talk about this and much more coming up right here on Operation Red Pill. Welcome back to another episode of Operation Red Pill, where we take you beyond conspiracy theories to the heart of the conspiracy itself. Christopher Dean. How you doing, man? Not bad. How about yourself? Pretty good. How was your week? It was all right. I just got back from a road trip where God was really, really dealing with my acceptance of of sin. Okay. Because you've talked a little bit about how, you know, God, because he designed things a perfect, uh, a certain way that he wants it that way. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, and then just how much anything that's not how he designed it, you know, he despises kind of. Right. When he put all of his work into setting up a system to run perfect. Right. And then any bit of corruption that causes it to run different than how he designed really irks him. Right. So then God was kind of dealing with me on this road trip on how I'm okay with just blurring the lines a little bit, sliding. So speeding is, is a thing I go off and on with, with okay. the Lord convicting me. But 1,500 miles, you're hitting that um, cruise control. Right. And I, I set the cruise for over the legal speed limit. Okay. Which everyone does, right? Yeah, yeah. And God was like, really? He's like, it's one thing to just accidentally go over in your hurry, you're not paying attention, but you're specifically choosing to set your speed higher than what you know you should. I'm so glad that God deals with us differently. <laughs> I thought of you. I was like, why don't you tell Jason this? I know he drives way faster than I do. This is not fair. No, I'm really glad that he saw fit in his divine wisdom to deal with you and not me. So I'm working with this. And then even like, even so much to the, if the, uh, the speedometer is right on the line or just a little bit over, he's mm. like, how, how much are you okay with? Like a whole mile per hour, a half mile per hour. Cause either way you're in violation of what the, the rule is. Right. So I was kind of dealing with that, but I'm also eating trail mix, right? <laughs> so <laughs> I don't know this, if this is, is going legal. well. Well, so I'm like, I'm, I'm kind of arguing quietly without actually saying anything to God, but I'm like, it's fine. It's not even a mile per hour. Like part of the red line still on the green one. Like, right. Give me a break. So I'm eating trail mix. And then I check the rear view mirror to make sure I don't have like, you know, I don't want to say nuts in my teeth. <laughs> <laughs> I got to get this out. <laughs> what did he say? <laughs> but so I'm looking in the mirror and there's just these, this tiny speck, right? It's an itty bitty black speck of trail mix. It's in my teeth. And God's like, hmm, you're, are you not? That's just a little bit. Why do you got to get that? out? It's barely noticeable. But right. I was like, but it's right there on the, he's like, mm-hmm. So I had to correct my speed. So it was, <laughs> <sighs> it was a challenging trip. Yeah. That sounds like it hurt. <laughs> How's your week been? You know, dude, I, I had an interesting week, man. I came up, uh, somebody presented me some information this week that I found really interesting. Um, it was actually dealing with the fact that, statistically speaking, people of uh, African descent okay. are taller than most of the other ethnic groups. And so I asked him, you know, why? And said, it's simple, because you guys have Negroes. Wow. That's that's the word of God. <laughs> oh, it wasn't God. Oh, it wasn't. No, this is another person. Okay. I was like, Negroes. So, my bad. They, so they point to their knee like, yeah, you're, you're right. Negroes. You're Negroes. Yeah. <laughs> that's so terrible. Dude, it was the worst dad joke mixed with a little bit of racism. I was like, I didn't know how to feel. Like, part of me wanted to laugh. Another part wanted to be offended. The right. third part checked my knee. <laughs> I, was, I was like, wait, wait, what? <laughs> now I want to know, like... <laughs> Are, are the melanin rich uh, statistically taller than the rest of the group? <laughs> you like, really want to know. It's all into question now. No, because I was mad. I was like, did you just concoct this whole stupid joke so you could say Negro to me? 
I was like, is that, is that what you did? I really think that's what you were doing. Oh, that's funny. Yeah, so like I said, interesting week. Yeah, no doubt. Well, all too often, I find myself scrolling through social media. Wait, wait, you're not even a social media dude. Uh, I mean, I wanted to get rid of it, but... All too often? Well, yeah, because as far as I'm concerned, any time on social media is too often. Okay, I'll give you that. (laughs) So I'm on social media, minding my own, well... I guess you're not on there to mind your own business, are you? You really <laughs> no, are to mind no, you mind other people's business. <laughs> but I'm, I'm confronted with this unsettling idea. So it's the idea that it's really stupid to believe the Bible. Is this your idea or just something no, you're getting from social media? it's something I come across okay, fairly, I got you. fairly frequently. In fact, I have a couple of friends that intentionally post things. I don't know if they do it for my benefit. Okay. <laughs> But we have, you know, opposing ideas right. and, and we're still able to be friends on Facebook you know, okay. like adults. Um, but sometimes it, it gets me, whether it's like a joke or an offhanded comment or, or sometimes a direct attack on the Bible. Hmm. Um, it makes me or it implies at least that, that we're, we're dummies or we're stupid right. for believing like the sky daddy or whatever. You know, they've got all of these yeah. these phrases. And, and what sometimes what disturbs me more than the attack itself is my emotional response. Okay. It, sometimes it can cause me to freeze like a deer in the headlights. Even though I can easily get out of the way, I just stand in the road staring at the car, you know, contemplating, should I really let this thing run me over? You know, like wondering if there is validity. And I guess so we should do this. We shouldn't just dismiss any idea that, that's counterintuitive to our own. But emotionally to freeze and go, well, maybe they're right. Maybe I am really stupid and just not from an intellectual place, but emotionally. Mm-hmm. And I've been there. I, I've experienced that, that sensation. So I, I get where you're coming from. Yeah. It's, uh, it's unsettling. And, and you don't want to let that take root. Like you really have to be, um, not attentive. You have to be the, intentional, the, intentional to fight, to get it, fight yes. against it. Yeah. Cause, cause if it takes root, it can really seed itself as, is doubt or disbelief. I find for me that, that it's not just doubt or disbelief that I have to fight against. It's immediately fear. Okay. Like what if I'm really wrong? And what if this whole life that I have been living and, and the decisions that I've made, the costs that I've had to pay some big, some small, but what if all of that was for naught and I'm just stupid for, for making those decisions. Yeah. You know, and I found that fear like creeps up from the belly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And you have to decide how you respond to that. So no, I can relate. Yeah. It, it makes me grateful for the grace of God that he gave me a mind um, that can be trained against ideas like that. Gotcha. Uh, it's gotten easier uh, to let that car just run itself off a cliff, but it still takes some effort, you know, confronted with those ideas uh, to, to get over them or, or navigate around them. Well, you know, some of this uh, response comes from the fact that there there are a lot of bad answers out there as to why people believe what they believe. You know, for instance, two bad reasons for belief are, uh, number one, because I was raised that way. Right. And number two, because I had an experience. Okay. You know, I tried it and it works. Gotcha. Uh, both of those answers fall dreadfully short of an answer worth devoting your life to. Okay. And I've actually been coached. Uh, in the church to give one of those answers for sure. Really? Oh yeah. Like, you know, there's a common idea that nobody can argue against your experience. Yeah. I've heard that. Yeah. So just tell them what God's done for you and that should be enough. Hmm. And while I do understand that there's a personal testimony component to that, I think from a intellectual perspective, it's not a strong basis to build a life altering decision on. Right. Because if anybody else came up to me uh, and told me that they made a life altering decision because Johnny said he had an experience, <laughs> I'm going to be close to giving them an experience, which is a slap upside to hit. Right. You know I mean? That's nuts. It, it reminds me uh, real quick that there was, I was watching this documentary about like really couples that have been together a long time. Mm-hmm. And one of the couples, she actually was engaged like in her teens or whatever late teens, she was engaged to some other dude and broke it off with him 
and started dating this guy because he had a nicer car. Okay. Even though that worked for them because they had been married something like 74 years. Okay. That doesn't mean that you should break up with whoever you're dating and just marry the person with the nicest car. Like, that doesn't make any sense. Yeah, no, I get it. <laughs> like, that's, that's a huge problem there. So, yeah, I definitely think there's a place where you can argue experience. Yeah, there there is. But like, like we were saying, that has to be within pretty well-defined scope. And right. I don't think that it should be the the primary catalyst for trying to persuade someone to make a life-altering decision, especially right. not to serve our Lord. Right. That that should be based on some things that I think are far deeper. You know, in fact, as thinking believers, Christopher, I think we need to realize that there actually are better answers. Okay. There are answers that satisfy both biblical soundness and intellectual uh, credibility. Okay. You know, answers that are sound or logical, evidence-based reasons to believe that everything that the Bible says is true. And, and the core of this particular insight that we're navigating today comes from none other than Dr. Vody Bakum. Okay. And I like Vody. Vody's good. Yeah, Vody hit me in the chest and then kicked <laughs> me in the throat. And, and while I was on my way down, crushed me in the balls. I was like, Vody, stop. <laughs> I've had enough for one day. And he was like, well, on your way out, take this. And his delivery style is second, second to none. I mean, yeah. it, it is so refreshing. I think what I enjoy about him the most is he does not back down. Right. He is unapologetic. I For don't, sure. I, I agree with a lot. I don't agree with everything, but in, in the midst thereof, between what I agree and disagree with, I still respect the fact that he has well thought out reasons for what he believes. Right. Absolutely. And he expects his listeners to come to their own conclusions by doing some well thought out analysis themselves. Yep. There's a demand that he places on the listener, and I respect that. I remember the the first time you sent me, because you introduced me to Vody. Mm -hmm. the, the first time I listened to him. You're welcome. <laughs> it was so funny because it's, it's kind of how God works. Like, I hit it with a little bit of hubris in the very beginning. Like, who's this guy? Well, no, just I was real quick to judge because he in the beginning, I thought he spoke a little slow. I remember that. That was the thing that annoyed you. Yeah. I was like, wow, he's just really taking his time getting to the point. And shoot, by the time we're halfway through his sermon, I'm like, slow down, slow down. <laughs> Break. <laughs> Break. It was so funny. Uh, but yeah, uh, love me some Vody. Yeah. Vody's dope. In fact, Vody has uh, a great sermon on why we believe the Bible on YouTube. Okay. We highly recommend it. If you are listening out there. Absolutely. In, in podcast land or what? What'd you call it? What'd I call the podverse? Podverse. Yeah, like something that. like yeah. that. Uh, so watch it if you if you get the chance. Uh, it's uh, Vody's elegant and succinct answer is this, and that's it's going to be the the core of today's episode. So he says we have a reliable source of historical documents written by eyewitnesses during the lifetime of other eyewitnesses who speak of supernatural events that took place in fulfillment of specific prophecies. And the writers claim that their works are divine, not human in origin. What I love so much when he introduced that uh -huh. was the fact that I believe he was telling a quick story of a young lady uh, that was in his church that also went to university. Okay. And he was talking about how university professors love to find the Christian person that says they believe in Christ, but doesn't have a deep structural understanding of why. Okay. And what they have is probably one of those two answers we gave earlier. You know, either I was raised this way or I had an experience. Right. And they eat them for lunch, <laughs> pick their teeth with Christians. They love it. And so this young lady was uh, listening to her professor. Professor actually opened up his line of reasoning the same way Vody said he was going to do it. Starts going down the list as to why people who believe in Jesus Christ are basically unintelligent. They don't unintelligent. They don't have sound reasons for why. And this young lady raised. She said she her hand went up. She even know why it was up. <laughs> she looked at the hand. Looked at the professor. Professor looked at her in the hand. They both looked at the hand. It was like I, I don't even know why it's up. Professor. <laughs> professor said he had that gleam in his eye. It was like lunch <laughs> you young lady you probably believe in, in the in the lord and she said yeah and he said why because 
all of you, I'm sure it's because you had some experience or you were raised this way. And she said, that's not why I believe. And he said, why do you believe? She said, I believe because we have a reliable source of historical documents written by eyewitnesses during the lifetime of other eyewitnesses who speak of supernatural events that took place in fulfillment of specific prophecies. And the writers claim their works are divine, not human in origin. <laughs> Professor sat there, dumbfounded. <laughs> Didn't know what to say. Said, uh, well, I'll get back to you on that. And she stood her ground. I loved it. That's excellent. This right here got me hooked. I was like, Vody, you got me for the next 45 minutes. Right. And it's it's vitally important because this, I mean, this is what we filter everything through. Right. Because I've been in that girl's uh, uh, shoes. I, I've been there. When you are actually in front of someone, you're in front of a, you know, authority figure, whoever, they're grilling you about what you believe. You don't not really sure how to articulate it. You know, you're supposed to, because scripture says you're supposed to go out and share. You don't want to be ostracized. You know, you're about to be ostracized. It's like just about just before Christ got crucified. You're like, here it comes any day now. And I hate this feeling, but I'm, I don't want to deny Christ and be denied. So go ahead bring on the cannon, the cannon fire. Come on, stay away from my face. That's, that's, That's what it's like, you know, but she actually had something worthwhile. She was able to shoot back with some very hard-hitting artillery. Right. So I'm, I'm excited to get into this, man. Yep, let's do it. So the, it might sound like a mouthful, uh, but we'll unpack it a little bit here. Right. So keep in mind, uh, if you like this kind of content, Vody and the late Chuck Missler have a plethora of similar info all over the internet. So don't just take our word for it. Now we need the, the reading rainbow music. <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, it's not just truthfully armed saying this stuff. It's not just Operation Red Pill. There's plenty of info out there for those willing to look for it. Feel free to contact us. Uh, We'd love to send you some links, some names of books, uh, or people that could assist you in your study. Uh, It's really an exciting and worthwhile journey. Absolutely right, bro. Uh, Jumping right in here. The first part uh, of that answer uh, to why we believe the Bible is this. We have a reliable source of historical documents. Say that again. And you say say it with me. If you ride in your car, jogging, whatever you're doing, just just say it with me. We have a reliable source of historical documents. I'm sorry, I'm gonna interrupt. I don't know why, but I went to the Italian job. You're, you're like, say it with me, and I was like, we had a bad. <laughs> no, that's I said a reliable. <laughs> Source of historical documents. Okay, sorry. Yeah, that's better. Yeah, you, now I've got you and most deaf in my mind <laughs> oh, oh, over this whole, what was he doing? Putting fireworks and stuff? No, it was it was dogs. He's like, I don't do dogs. I had a bad experience. I'm like, that's oh, right. Oh, what happened? I had, I had a, a bad, bad experience. experience. Yeah, we're going to have to edit this out. <laughs> so one thing to remember about the Bible is this. It's not just a book. It's a collection of manuscripts collected over many years, all carrying the exact same message of hope. In fact, it's actually 66 books written by over 44 different authors over a span of almost 2000 years. And we have 6000 copies written within 30 years of the original. Now, listen to me. No other belief system can boast such a robust collection of foundational documents. The diversity of authorship here ensures it's not a single person's, you know, a delusion or just their idea that spread over time. The fact that it was spread over time reduces the chances of collusion and intentional misleading by the authors. Right. It always amazes me that a Babylonian king wrote part of Daniel. Right. That's just crazy. Yeah. The same one who got turned into a beast. Yeah. Like it was the first biblical example of transhumanism. (laughs) Got to turn him into a beast and turn him right back. <laughs> he didn't actually turn into a beast, though, did he? he yeah, didn't. he spent seven years as a beast. In fact, Scripture says, give him the mind of a beast. Then I believe it, his nails grew out, everything. And, and I believe Jewish tradition holds that Daniel took care of him during those seven years. Interesting. Made sure I didn't he, know was he actually right. made like a transformation. Yeah, pretty much. Huh. Seven years. And then Daniel helped bring him back. Interesting. Huh. Some might argue uh, that we don't actually have the original manuscripts, so all hope of truth must be lost. Right. 
Now, while it's true we don't have the originals, we do have over 6,000 copies or pieces of copies, some of which were written within 30 years of the originals. Now, Christopher, for those that might not understand the significance of that, uh, how does that hold up against other ancient documents? You know, can other ancient documents boast to have 6,000 copies of the original text, some of which were written within 30 years of the original, or as they say in The Incredibles, I think not. <laughs> it's a good question. So we'll, we'll look today at um, two non-contested historical documents, Aristotle's Poetics and the Iliad by Homer. I hated the Iliad. <laughs> Did you? Yeah, I remember having to read that in high school. <laughs> I, I will go back and read it now. But in high school, it was so boring. Yeah, I can see that. Like his required reading. Right. Yeah. But be given some of the stuff I know now, it might be more interesting. Yeah. It, we might need to check that out. Yeah, we'll put it on the list. Uh, but Aristotle's Poetics. So we have about 12 copies. And the earliest copies that we have are dated a thousand years after Aristotle was alive. Really? Yeah. Hmm. Now, these are non-contested documents like no one argues the authenticity of aristotle's poetics so they don't face any higher criticism no interesting and then uh homer's the iliad we have a few hundred manuscripts so we're getting a little bit better than aristotle here okay but the earliest we have is over two thousand years after the originals were written that's nuts so as far as historical accuracy of ancient documents go, the Bible truly stands alone in its validity. By all the measures that we use to judge the authenticity of ancient text, the Bible not, is not only able to contend, but comes in at a landslide victory. Okay. So I get it. We've established the authenticity of Scripture being close to the original documentation. But I can hear the skeptic. I can hear Mr. Skept Mr. out there. Skep. Mr. Skept, maybe the text is valid, but hasn't been translated correctly. You know, having been translated so many times, maybe certain things have gotten lost in translation. Well, just like the game of telephone, every time someone repeats a message, it degrades further and further until the final message doesn't even resemble the original. I remember I, I listened to a, a debate between Ken Ham and, uh, and Bill Nye. And this was his argument. He, he might have even used the, the telephone analogy. I remember but that. He's like, and over, he just wouldn't let it go. Uh, why do you believe the Bible? It's been translated so many times, so many times, so many times. Yeah, because the idea is that with each translation, there's degradation of the information. Right. But that's not necessarily the case when it comes to Scripture. You know, here we would answer that even though the degradation is true uh, for the game of telephone, this is not at all how the Bible was actually translated. Right. You know, it hasn't been a linear translation process. That is, it's not as if the, the King James was translated from the Greek and then the NIV is translated from the King James and then the, the New Living Translation is translated from the NIV and so on and so forth. What actually happened is that the King James was translated from the original copies. The NIV was translated from the from the original ancient text, and the NLT was also translated from original or close to original text. Right. So just about every time there's a translation project, they revert back to the ancient manuscripts like the Masoretic text or the Septuagint. And they're going back to these ancient documents that they have in, in, uh, in their possession to make a fresh translation. Right. Right. It's not just a continuation of older translations. Right. And that doesn't even count for the fact that Septuagint was in circulation well, up to like three centuries before Christ. Right. Already. So if there, you know, somebody's people talk about not only there are multiple translations and it's so old, but dude, these translations, the Greek translation of the Old Testament was already in circulation. So if all these people had it and you started making changes, they know it. Right. Right? Yep, they would. So these are some pretty, uh, there There are some pretty terrible versions of the Bible out there. But for the most part, and what we mean is there are some, so there are some translations of the Bible that are, that are not good. Right. Not that the Bible is terrible. <laughs> um, but for the most part, every quote unquote new translation is derived from the same set of core documents. That's the takeaway. So this would allow for, for greater study and clarification. Okay. So 
just as if I would tell you and tell my wife and tell my dad some information, Mm -hmm. like a grocery list or directions on how to get to a place, something like that. You'd all be able to share if you talked amongst yourselves what I said and get a clearer picture. Right. You know, so it's not you telling my wife and then her telling my dad. So every time information is lost because each of you got your information directly from the source, you're able to compare and contrast for, for even better clarity than just maybe you hearing it by yourself. You know, the, uh, uh, you know, the other problem with that meta, with that analogy, what's that telephone is played with children. Okay. Yeah. Children are not that advanced and sophisticated (laughs) at being able to keep a message. Right. Now, if you played quote unquote telephone with adults, there's less likelihood that the message would be corrupted. Right. Than if you're playing with children. And you mentioned the the Septuagint. Wasn't that translated by 70 people? Yeah. So 70 scholars, not just a a little kid that has a chance of misunderstanding. Right. So yeah, the, the analogy is wrong on so many levels. It's almost a straw man argument. Yeah. Almost. Yeah. Because it, it definitely relies on a misunderstanding of, of what's re- really happening. Right. And then it uses that misunderstanding to poke holes. Right. So, yeah, I've, I've got a problem with that whole idea. So the Bible is authentic in its historic sense, and the translations haven't caused the message to degrade. Now, one might, I think Mr. Skep. Okay. One might ask about intentional manipulation of the text. So there's, there's several different ideas here that either a ruler or an overzealous sect of monks didn't like things the Bible said, so they just edited those things out. Yeah, I've heard that argument before too. Um, so people use that argument to say, oh, well, some people took some stuff out, so it's all false. Right. <clears throat> Which completely, again, denies, it shows that they don't have a, a good understanding of the translation process. Right. Because those monks were were... Those scribes, not monks, were extremely meticulous about every jot and tittle. We don't have a tittle in our language, but those are like small. Shut up. It's going to be your new word for the, for the day. It's just tittle. <laughs> but it's like a small, um, not even an apostrophe, but like the dot on an I. Right. That, that's what it's like. I think that's what a yacht is. And I think a tittle is like one of the uh, squiggly things. Yeah, it's not a till day, but. You know, it's it's a squiggly thing. I'm not fluent in Hebrew. Well, Chuck says it's the same as like Chuck Missler that yeah. is, is crossing the T's and dotting of the I's. It is. So from what I understand, if they left an, an I undotted or if they left a T uncrossed, to put it in our language, mm-hmm. they would discard the entire page. And start from scratch. And start over. That's nuts. That's how meticulous they were and how serious they took this. It also is kind of an insult to the scribe to suggest that they were so sloppy right. in their translations that they could make these mistakes and just pass it on. They didn't care. Yeah, I would agree. Yeah. Because lots of hard work went into it. Right. But th- there have been groups all through history um, who think that they can augment or diminish the writings of the Bible. But these groups openly add or subtract the text. Okay. And they're, and they're well documented. So what they don't do is erase history or change the known establishment or the origination of the foundational set of documents that make up the New Testament. They're not able to do that. Okay. Even if those people wanted to distort the Bible in such a way, it would be nearly impossible. I got you. you know, in the early years, Christopher, uh, of, the, of the church, the Bible was translated from Greek to Syriac, Coptic, and even into Latin. So if you were going to edit the text, you'd actually have to do it in four languages without error and without getting caught, right? Right. It was copied in these languages in three separate continents. So your deception would have to cover four languages and three continents without error and without getting (laughs) caught. Now, I don't think James Bond could pull that off. (laughs) Right, right. Sounds like it would be more difficult to make the errors that they're suggesting than just to translate it correctly. Uh, I would agree. So the third reason this wouldn't be possible is because the early church fathers wrote extensive commentary on the Bible, so much so that if all we had to go off of was the the commentary from the early church fathers, we'd be able to reconstruct the whole Bible except 11 verses. Hmm. I think it's important to note here, though, that there there are um, scholars, good scholars, 
on both sides of the argument here. Some some will attest to this and say that it's accurate, but okay. some will argue that it's it's not really accurate because the chapter and verse, um, shoot, not divinations. What's the what's the word I'm looking for? Dividing. Right, but there there's another word I can't think. But but dividing the verses and the chapters. Didn't, Separations. I don't know. I thought it started with a D. I don't know. Anyway. Okay. The chapters and verses weren't put in until years later. Okay. So how could, you know, it, it just, it causes a little bit of confusion. But the, the main point to take away here is that you could construct almost the whole Bible using the commentary of the early church fathers. Interesting. <clears throat> so you'd have to edit the Bible in four languages in three countries, and you would have to edit all of the church fathers' commentary <laughs> all while destroying all the originals without error and without getting caught. Yeah, that's not plausible. No, not at all. So we've established that the Bible, the Bible is a reliable source of historical documents. It's authentic and unhindered by time and translation. But is it an accurate telling of events? Are the claims supported by the writers um, actually historic? Like, did they take place? Okay, so like, the, are they supported by historic findings? By historic findings, yes. Thank gotcha. you. Uh, this takes us to the next line in our defense. The, uh, the Bible is written by eyewitnesses during the lifetime of other eyewitnesses. So hold up, hold up, hold up. Let's do this. We have a reliable source of historical documents written, written by eyewitnesses during the lifetime of other eyewitnesses. Correct. All right, I'm with you. So, writings of contemporaries confirm the information that's in the Bible. There have been over 25,000 archaeological digs based off of the information in Scripture, and not a single one of them have disproven any of the information. In fact, most of which affirm and confirm the information that we find in the Bible. 44 people wrote about the existence of Jesus, and less than half of them are found in the Bible. Hmm. None of the writers of that day ever wrote to refute the events that took place. So we have historians writing about the time, and no one contradicts the events that took place in the Bible. Many wrote to explain away certain events, such as the darkness that took place at the crucifixion as an eclipse. Uh, this is actually disproven by science, as a total eclipse does not last long enough to support the historic telling, and there couldn't have been one following the Passover. Hmm. I think, I don't want to speak out. It might have been Piney, the, the, the younger, the elder. I don't know. One of them wrote kind of defending that position. Okay. So it wasn't um, arguing against the darkness that happened at the crucifixion. It was just trying to explain it away. Gotcha. But what this does do is it corroborates the Bible writings in defense of the events themselves. 1 <clears throat> Corinthians alone was written while at least 301 eyewitnesses to Christ were still alive and not a single shred of evidence from Kim, Kim, oh my contemporary contemporaneous writers refute the claims made in Scripture. So the fact that it was written during the lifetime of eyewitnesses gives an opportunity for... Um, for them to contend the idea, you know, if we're like, you like contest it. Yeah. Contest it. So gotcha. if I, if I wrote about something that happened in your lifetime, you could read it and be like, Nope, that didn't happen. I was there. Right. There's no evidence at all of that happening. Interesting. Yeah. Hmm. Pretty cool. Yeah. You know, some of those, uh, some of these ideas actually bring up a good question here. Um, the supernatural events that took place, how can we trust those? You know, just to recap our defense here, we have a reliable source of historical documents, right? Written by eyewitnesses during the lifetime of other eyewitnesses that report supernatural events that took place in fulfillment of specific prophecy. And they claim their writings are divine rather than human in origin. Okay. So. They write of events that would be impossible for a human to undertake without supernatural intervention. Right. Using prophecies such as Isaiah 53 and Psalms 22 <clears throat> that sound as if they were taken by eyewitnesses themselves 
hundreds, if not thousands of years before the life of Christ. You know, Psalms 22 is actually a really interesting example because that's like a first person version of Christ being crucified. Right. That's, it, it was crazy. I remember the first time I read it, I was like, there's no way this is in here. And you read it and they're like, that's totally nuts. Right. It kind of opens, it makes your brain explode to how you actually read the Bible. Right. Because when you read something as prolific as the crucifixion of Christ, you would have expected some sort of firsthand accounts. Like, give me something about how it felt, something. Right. And when you read the Gospels, you don't get that. But the idea that hundreds of years prior to Christ even inserting himself into the timeline, his first person view of these events that would happen within the timeline were already recorded, recorded before his arrival. Right. That's crazy. It's insane. And this... <clears throat> Psalms 22 has got, and I got to thank Mike Winger for this because he helped me see this. Okay. And, and the Holy Spirit, because I had heard Mike say it a bunch of times and it didn't really click for me a, until the other day. So Psalms 22 says that because of the death of the Messiah, all of the nations, people in all of the nations will worship the God of Israel. And you're right. like, okay, that's cool. It's stuff that we take for granted now. But I actually wear a, um, you know, I wear my uh, Yahweh hat. Yeah. To, to work, hoping that people will ask me about it. And I've actually kind of come hit a brick wall with it because then I'm just talking about like the Tetragrammaton and the God of Israel. And usually people don't pay attention long enough for me to get to Jesus or whatever. Okay. But this Psalm 22 thing really kind of opened my eyes because there are people all over the world in every land and nation who worship the God of Israel. All right. This wasn't the case before Jesus. Hmm. So if this prophecy was fulfilled, it had to have been Jesus. Because here's the other problem. There, no one else can do it. Like it's, it's already been done. Interesting. No one else can cause every, people of every nation to worship, worship the God of Israel. That's interesting. I like that. So now I'm more excited to wear my Yahweh hat. Yeah. Because I can point directly to Jesus and be like, people of every nation worship this dude. And it's because of what Jesus did. So I thought that was really cool. Now, that's dope. I like that. All right, here's another thing. The late Chuck Missler actually advocated that the Bible was an integrated message system by a supernatural being outside of our time domain. And that the accuracy of prophecy by both pattern and prediction gives us the most sound and logical reasoning for believing its supernatural origins. Right. For things just like this, like you hundreds of years before to be able to detail things out like that had to be someone outside of the restrictions of linear time. Right. <clears throat> Gabriel's prophecy in Daniel 9 that predicts the exact day. This one always gets me. I got to give this one to Chuck Missler again because he laid this one out for me. Yeah, this blew my mind this when, when, when he did this. So the prophecy in Daniel 9 predicts the exact day when Jesus rode into Nazareth and presented himself king. The exact day. So much so that Jesus expected the Israelites to know that he was the Messiah and the fact that they didn't con condemned them to judgment fulfilled in the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. Like condemned them to what? To judgment. I didn't think we were supposed to be judging people. That's what Ooh. all the Christians talk about. <laughs> well, Jesus is doing it. Now, that might sound a little <clears throat> weird to you guys, but if you check out our other episode on... Uh, seven lies or children are being taught. You understand that there's one in there that talked about uh, judging. Right. And uh, that's what we were making an, an allusion to. Yep. But in the, so going back to this Daniel nine prophecy, <clears throat> uh, Gabriel's talking to Daniel and he says that so many days, and it's hard for us to understand in, you know, not being in that culture. Cause it's like four score and seven years or whatever like times like, upon times. And I'm like, that's too many X's dude. Right. But it's not colorful phrasing. It, it actually means certain amounts of time. Yeah. So he said that so many days after the declaration to rebuild the temple would be the day that the Messiah would present himself as King. And it just so happens to be on that exact day recorded in Daniel is when Jesus rode the donkey into Nazareth and presented himself King. When everyone said glory, Wow, this is going to show my biblical literacy. <laughs> what is it? Glory to God in the highest? Don't put me on the on the <laughs> hot seat with you. This is the day that the Lord has made. Yeah. yeah. You're talking about Palm Sunday, though. Palm Sunday, yeah. yeah. Was actually declared by Gabriel in, in Daniel 9. 
That's awesome. That is. That's really an amazing um, miracle. Yes, for sure. In and of itself. I mean, just not just the fact that you're talking to an angel. And mind you, this whole thing came about by the time when, when Daniel wasn't even supposed to be praying. Because the edict had gone forth. You're okay. not supposed to, to pray. Uh, you're supposed to be worshiping Nebuchadnezzar. Daniel commits his way and says, I'm still going to pray. Right. And gets in trouble. But I believe it was like during that, they did a fast. The the Daniel fast, the 21 days? Is yeah. that what it was? Yeah. Yeah. And he doesn't stop, which everybody thinks the 21 days is like, he said, I'm going to fast for 21 days. What blows me away is that Daniel was committed to fast till he got an answer. It just took 21 days to manifest. Yeah, if it had taken 31 or 41 days, he would have still been fasting. That's crazy. Right? I don't and, know. And then. Yeah, that's a lot. <laughs> it is. a lot of fasting. But then this is, it, Gabriel shows up. And these are the things that Gabriel's talking to him about. Yeah. That gets recorded in, in the book of Daniel. And it's some intense stuff. It really, really is. So in, oh, wow. I just had. Lightning strike my brain. Sorry, we watched Hook just the other day. <clears throat> um, that Paul talks about that the, what is it, the suffering of this world doesn't compare, you know, mm -hmm. and <clears throat> that God's yoke is easy. Like so often when we're in the moment, like if you're in a 21-day fast, like it'd be grueling. You know what I mean? Oh, gosh, it would suck. Right, but in the, in the divine perspective that people thousands of years later are going to be going, look what Gabriel told this dude. And I mean, it took more than fasting. It's not all he did, but you know, just to give perspective to the suffering and that's in this life. Like it, I don't know. It just gave me some perspective. I always like the fact that while Daniel's sitting there doing this fast, if he's, if Daniel's anything like me after day one, I'm starting to doubt <laughs> day, day one. Well, after day one, so somewhere around day two. All right, God, I asked you for this thing. I told you this is what we need. You told me to bring all of my, my supplications before you, and you ain't supplifying. I need, <laughs> I need you to answer. By day three and the stomach's rumbling, I just guess God's not going to answer, y'all. We just got to go back to eating because obviously he's, he's not going to come through. Mind this you, isn't the time. <laughs> right, but mind you, Gabriel's in a fight. Yeah. Gabriel's literally in a supernatural fight against a principality. Yep. Which, I, I mean, I'd love to see how that goes down. Well, I don't think he was doing great because Michael had to come and help. No, I think he was doing good. But the principality, I mean, I'm just saying it's the principality. Yeah. And Michael had to show up. And I don't know if Michael, well, yeah, because Gabriel said nobody else came to my aid. Yeah. So Michael shows up and. He's a heavy hitter. Yeah, Michael don't play. <laughs> my, I mean, Michael kicked, Michael kicked the dragon down. Right. Yeah, in his chest. So he, he, he don't play, but still Gabriel was, I think, able to hold his own because Gabriel says, right, right now I got to go back. He's fighting Persian. He's got to go deal with Greece on the way back. And I'm right. like, that's so he's a no chump. No, but that's a heck of a thing. Though, like I saw saving private Ryan. It killed a lot of people to get the message to Ryan. Yeah. He's got to come back. <laughs> Gabriel's got to go through a whole nother set of warfare just to get back to where he had to go to. And he, he wasn't even speaking like, I, I guess applying to the authenticity of scripture by this specific prophecy, um, the kingdom of Greece came after Persia. Right. So that's what Gabriel was actually alluding to, like continuing this, this fight with principalities over nations. Yeah. And that was a spiritual principality. It was over a nation that hadn't actually been formed yet. Right. I don't, I mean, I can't imagine the degrees of warfare that happened in the spiritual realm. It's crazy stuff. But if you still put that over Daniel fasting. The 21 days doesn't seem very long. It doesn't. But I mean, I've done fast for three days. They're long. <laughs> it's a long three this days. This is seven times that. And I think that the point I guess I'm trying to get to, it's the mindset. First off, that you set your mind to, I'm going to petition God until I get an answer. I don't care how long it takes. Yeah. So you have to condition your mind against doubt and against fear. Cause I'm sure the enemy came to him and was like, guys, not listening. Right. Yo, it's, it's been three days. It's been four days, five days. I tell you what, man, maybe guys busy. I'll give you six more. I'll see you back on day 12. Day 12 shows up. You got an answer yet? No, I told you guys not listening. 
And that's not the truth. The truth was God heard him on day one, sent the answer. Right, that that day. That day. And Gabriel got under attack. He must have been like a FedEx courier or something. You know, because <laughs> UPS Michael would have got, got that through immediately. That's rude. <laughs> <laughs> you know? And I think for us, there's a takeaway there that's important. If you're praying and you're talking to God and you you need to get this information, you're waiting to hear what he has to say back. Don't be dismayed. I, I hate doing podcasts for this reason. What's that? Because I know as I'm saying this to people, I feel like God is writing this down for me. Because <laughs> it's going to come back. I feel like it really is because you, you can't be in a place where you give words out to people like that and not get tested yourself. Yeah. You know, and the way God is, he's like, look, you got a responsibility too much is given, much is required. I don't want to be put in a 21 day situation <laughs> and give up on day two. And they'd be like, but what about what about that episode? I can see Mr. Skep coming up right then. Talk about I thought you said persevere. Yeah. Where's where's the perseverance? But here's the takeaway. You you don't don't give up. You really don't know the warfare that is going on around getting that answer to you. Right. And if Daniel had given up, if the empowerment that comes from fasting had weakened his weakened the angel that was coming to his aid, maybe he would have never got the revelation that is here in scripture. Right. And he it wasn't just for Daniel. 20 days. Yeah, it wasn't like, just for Daniel. It was also for the entire Jewish people. And us? Yeah. yeah. And us. That's huge. You don't know how the answer to your prayer may affect not just you, but uh subsequent generations. Right. Like, that's crazy. So getting back, coming off of that little uh, dovetail there. <laughs> you know, so we got Christopher that Abraham set out to sacrifice Isaac on Mount Moriah and declared that God would provide himself a sacrifice. Well, 2,000 years later on that very same mountain complex now called Golgotha, God did provide himself a sacrifice in, in the person of Jesus Christ. Right. That's great. Yeah, that's mind-blowing. The same actual physical place that Abraham was ready to sacrifice Isaac. Right. Is the same physical place that the Heavenly Father sacrifices his son. Right. And I love Chuck Missler points out that um, when Abraham, he didn't just say that God will provide a sacrifice. When Isaac is like, where's the lamb, dude? Paraphrasing. <laughs> dude. <clears throat> dude. <laughs> <laughs> All right. It, it was appropriate in ancient Hebrew to refer to your father as dude. Right. So now I got to think of Abraham as Abraham Lebrowski. <laughs> that, that's awesome. But no, he said God would provide himself a sacrifice. Yeah. That was a very keen insight. Right. That's awesome. So another way we can look at this is that Hebrew and Greek are distinct languages. And they're set apart from other languages as are the only two that actually assign numeric values to their letters. Okay. So that's how you get like alpha and bravo and, and those actually have numeric values assigned to them. Gotcha. Right? It's, it wouldn't be alpha and bravo. Is, is it? Aleph and bet. Aleph and bet? For Hebrew. Okay. Uh, I don't know Greek. But I it's, think Greek, Greek is alpha, but it's not bravo. Because alpha and omega is Greek. Yeah. I don't know what the second one is for, yeah. for Greek. Wow. Should have studied that one out a little bit more. I should have researched that a bit. Anyway, so we know that, that the, the letters have assigned numbers. In Genesis 1-1, this is written in Hebrew, where it says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. There's uh, a particular equation. So again, we'll thank Chuck Missler because he does a lot of this hidden codes in the Bible and things like that. Okay. But this is one of my favorites. So there's an equation using the numeric values of the Hebrew letters. Simplified for the podcast, it'd be AB divided by CD. So it's something like the, the product of the letters times the product of the um, words divided by the product of the words. Shoot, I can't remember it. That's why I simplified it. Anyway, it's something like that. Combining the letters, the numeric value of the letters and the words in this particular um, equation in Genesis 1-1, where it says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, that section, you use this equation and it gives you pi to four decimal places. Cherry, blueberry, apple, 
What were you talking about? Not that pi. The mathematic constant. So what is pi and math? Pi is the circumference of a circle. Well, no, it's the what it's the difference between the diameter and the circumference. So if you multiply the diameter times pi, you get the circumference. Right? Okay. I think. Or the the radius. I'm using all kinds of words now. Yeah. The line that runs through the middle. I'm really not the dumb people. <laughs> this is debatable. <laughs> all I know is pi is three point one four. Right. I mean, and then it's a and then a whole bunch of numbers decimal. after that. But I'm fairly certain it's if you take the diameter of a circle times pi, it gives you the radius, which is the distance all the way around the circle. I'm I'm fairly certain that's what it is. You can you can email us and tell us if we're wrong or not. Anyway, pi, whether or not we know what it is, is a mathematic constant. So you have this um, mathematic constant embedded in the Hebrew text a thousand years before the discovery. So that, I mean, that's fine and all. But here's where, here's where it really gets interesting. In a different place in the Bible and in a completely different language, John 1.1, 1, 1, here where it talks about God's creation, says, it, I believe it's what in the beginning was the word and the word was God, something like that. But it, it speaks of God creating everything in John 1.1. 1, 1. And this is written in Greek. If you take the same exact equation and apply it to the, the values of the Greek letters, you get E to four decimal places. It's another mathematic constant, again, embedded in the text a thousand years before we ever discovered it. You know, to quote the great detective Sherlock Holmes, once you've eliminated the impossible, whatever remains, however improbable, must be the truth. And to circle back to you, you were correct. Was I? Yeah. All right. Yeah, pi is the ratio of the circumference of a circle to its diameter. Okay. So, kudos to you. Thanks. So, at this point, if nobody else feels this way, I sure do. <laughs> you know, we've, we've covered a lot today, and we realize that uh, some of our listeners might actually be experiencing a little bit of information overload because we talked about a lot of stuff here today. Right. We get it. And you might need some time to let that calm down and digest before you take the next step. But if you were interested in today's show uh, and you want to do a little more research and check out the links that we're going to post on the website, just go to our site, truthfullyarmed.com and on the main menu, select podcasts and then select show notes from the drop down menu and just look for the broadcast date of this show. And you should find linked resources from this episode. Uh, some of these might be sponsored links, which means a small portion of any purchase made using them will help support this channel. Now, with an audience of this size, we know that someone is always bound to ask that age-old question, why does any of this even matter? We call that the Ayala effect. The need to sift through information in order to find meaning. If you can't provide meaning for a person and all you give them is facts, or give them problems without a solution, then all they end up hearing is this. So here's some, some real-life application here. Uh, recently, I, I'd had some conversations with uh, some people in my family talking about the, the higher theological, I don't know if you'd call them lofty ideas, maybe. And they were like, the Bible's just so simple. I think you just overcomplicate it. Were you arguing the exegetical merits of scripture? <laughs> yes, I was. You got to be careful doing that <clears throat> and get you in trouble. But I've even had this, because it takes a lot of work, mm -hmm. you, know, you know what we do. Um, and I remember listening, I was listening to some PhD, I can't remember what they were talking about. And the enemy hit me with his doubt that none of this would matter. If you were just, if you were alone on an island, none of this would matter. So it might be all pointless. So that kind of sat uncomfortably with me for a while. Then I came to the beautiful understanding that no, it wouldn't matter. But when we say that the Bible is wholly adequate to deal with all of these situations, that if you are on a desert island, it has the information that you would need to direct you to Jesus, to, to have a one-on-one -on -one relationship with him right? and meet your needs there on a desert island. Well, for those of us that find ourselves in a technologically advanced super state, it's still just as adequate. It can answer all the hard theological issues, all of the scientific issues, all of the moral issues that arise. If there's no government, 
It can tell you how to live. It can also tell you how to live within a government and how to navigate that. Okay. So it's not any less relevant. So why this is important going through the authenticity of scripture and why we actually believe it and stand on it is because we have to know the state in which we live and adequately utilize the Bible for what it brings to the battlefield today. This, of course, is impossible if you accept the satanic lies that dethrone the Bible as a foundational text for our belief. Because the lies that the scripture is antiquated. So to believe these lies, to believe that scripture is antiquated and unable to address the issues we face today, these lies have been crafted by those opposing the living God of the Bible. I think what people have to remember is that, sadly, those people who are crafting these lies, suffice to say, they are the mortal enemies of God. They, they represent rogue human agents that serve the interests of Lucifer, albeit knowingly or unknowingly. But we have to understand that they, by consequence, are our enemies nonetheless. And the Bible tells us that we shouldn't be ignorant of our enemy's schemes. What we're supposed to do is expose those schemes. So the first practicality in obedience to the Bible is to educate yourself so that you're not ignorant. Correct. In fact, someone asking that question is likely to want to know, what steps can I take against this agenda? We would say educate yourself with content like this podcast for sure. Yes, I think we're a little partial and maybe slightly biased, but can you blame us? <laughs> and other sources that will challenge secular ideas that we pick up as we spend time oppressed by the satanic control matrix. I like that, Christopher. I, I would add just a, a few things here. Number one, uh, expose yourself to some of the common arguments against the authenticity of Scripture and arm yourself with specific rebuttals found in Scripture to those respective arguments. Okay. Number two, begin to listen, listen to Christian speakers like Vody Bauckham, uh, Mike Winger, or even Frank Turek that are skilled in debunking common attacks against Scripture. And then lastly, read the book, The Questions Christians Hope No One Will Ask, or read the book, I don't have enough faith to be an atheist. These two should help provide, give you a, a pretty good foundation on how to respond back to common attacks against Christianity. Right. And remember that we are never alone. We have a community of believers all over the country and a loving God who intervenes on our behalf. This allows us to stand in the gap and both assist those who are being damaged by the system and to help prevent others from falling into its trap a trap that has you doubting your faith on a molecular level and makes us afraid to present truth to the world. And we have to remember that we live in a world drowning in information, but starving for truth. Never before has there been so many ways to try and argue against the Bible and in turn argue against God himself. Despite this onslaught of attack, the Bible remains humanity's most reliable, reasonable, and intellectually satisfying belief system. And this is why we stand on truth and filter all of our thoughts through truth. Here's the thing. Every day we are given another opportunity to reclaim our minds from the oppressive mind control matrix we're subjected to on a 24-hour basis. But how? Simple. By renewing our minds, literally rewiring our brains with scripture so that we think more like Christ and less like Satan. And that means we can't forget that we live in a complex matrix of deception. That's a satanically inspired, demonically engineered prison for our minds. And we have to understand that it's been designed to operate with stealth protocol right in front of our noses so that it, it's hard to detect in order to influence us to do its dirty work and contribute our life energies to help establish the new world order. This system was erected by men and women that were committed to their cause, a cause that dates back to the ancient Luciferian snake worshiping Canaanite order an order that lusts for total world domination. And the walls of this matrix are the social control mechanisms used to guide humanity towards that aim. Now, between those walls, deep in the trenches, sits those of us who might not be so certain that the Bible is completely credible, unsure of the degree to which we can trust it and pressure to abandon it altogether. 
But standing right behind them are those of us that have withstood the onslaught of doubt and taken the time to repair our shields, knowing that we have a more sure word, one that was penned by over 40 authors across 1600 years and codified into 66 books that make up an integrated message system validated outside of our time domain and authenticated in the life of Jesus Christ, which means we are confident. We know what we know and we know what we believe. And with that, we can leverage a fight to take to the enemy. We have neither the time nor the inclination to be overly concerned anymore with the feelings of a world that rises and sleeps under the very blanket of free will that our God provides and then questions his goodness and wisdom in providing it. Which raises an important question here, Christopher. Who's going to challenge those gatekeepers? Is it going to be the Muslim? Nope. What about the Jew? Probably not. Perhaps the Hindu? Uh, I don't know. Wait, wait, wait. I got it. I got it. It's got to be the atheist. Or how about Mr. Skeptic? Negative, Ghost Rider. Well, if it's not going to be any of them, then will it be the serious follower of Christ? I mean, you know, the one that's supposed to stand flat-footed and unwaveringly speak truth to power using the unadulterated, eternal, and unapologetic word of God Almighty? It absolutely better be. You know, we, those of us who confess allegiance to Yahweh and recognize the eternally despondent position our sin and guilt have put us in before a holy God, and in turn recognize our need and acceptance of an eternal Savior, and not just any Savior, but Yahweh's Messiah, Yeshua, Jesus the Christ. We are the only bastion of hope this world has. Why? Because it's the church, and consequently, we're the only institution that has both the biblical mandate and social responsibility to act. There is a reason why scripture calls us salt and light. We are supposed to help stop the moral decay of society while simultaneously bringing in the intellectual and spiritual genius of Christ so that it replaces the false brilliance of Lucifer's enlightenment. But make no mistake, light will dispel darkness. That's a fact written into the laws of physics. But it will also attract attention. And that's a fact woven into the experience of creation. We have to be okay with that. And that's why 365 times scripture repeats the phrase, don't be afraid. But friends, listen, we get it. We know that many of the topics and discussions that we have here are unnerving for some and they're taboo for others. We actually try to go to the fringe of Christianity and deal with those topics that most churches today just wouldn't touch with a six foot cross because those topics are just too controversial. They're politi politically incorrect and they're scary as they actually should be. Because much, most, well, because much of what we reveal on this show are the hidden machinations of evil. Now, this evil is crafty and anticipates your apathy, your busyness, your fear of confronting others and tendency to want to avoid conflict. It manufactures feelings of inadequacy so that you avoid spending real quality time with our Heavenly Father. It helps that you'll not only shy away, but completely avoid any situation that asks you to speak up. Why? So that it can remain hidden and unchecked. But the fact remains, we must present the truth at all costs and at all times. See, guys, the reality is truth isn't just a collection of facts. It's not just an academic concept. It's a personal one, and it culminates in the personhood of Jesus Christ. He is the one on which all hope hangs, and there is no way you or I could defeat an archangel. See, and that's exactly why Jesus has promised to come back and deal with Satan in the most violent of ways. Listen, he will fulfill his messianic mandate. Jesus will restore creation back to its intended splendor. By reorienting everything again towards the Father, he will bring the created order into proper relational harmony by bringing everything into complete alignment with the Father's will again. That, ladies and gentlemen, is the true definition of a utopia. But until then, we have to come to terms with one fact, and that is the fact that we are deployed to this dystopian rock by our Savior-in-Chief, the very one that's commissioned us on a seesaw. That's right. We're on a combat search and rescue mission, people. And be advised, the hostages we're after are likely to be hostile towards us, but we still gotta go get them. Now our task and order is simple. We're to search for and rescue anyone that can be sympathetic to Christ, but is currently held hostage under Satan's deception. Now make no mistake, we will be operating in a hostile environment, 
But the rules of engagement are clear. Listen to me. You take fire, you give fire. Now I need you to keep your head on a swivel out there. Stay frosty, stay faithful, and above all, stay in the fight. That means don't give up, because we're counting on you. You ain't alone out there. We're fighting right next to you, and we'll see you out there again fighting on the front line. 10-4.